Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Monday, November 21st, 2022. I hope everybody had a good weekend. Now, here's a bunch of bad news for you. <laughs> um, actually, the first story isn't bad. Uh, the U.S. and Russia will hold new START talks starting November 29th. So the U.S. and Russia will hold talks on the last nuclear arms control treaty that remains between the two powers, which is the new START from November 29th to December 6th in Cairo, Egypt. So a whole week of talks that sounds like, uh, you know, they plan on on doing a lot. The dates were announced by Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Ryabkov. He suggested on Friday that the talks could lead to higher level negotiations with the U.S. It's not clear really if he means higher level arms control talks or just higher level talks in general. Uh, The State Department said earlier in November that the U.S. and Russia had agreed to hold talks under the Bilateral Consultative Commission. That's an implementation body established by the New START. So the treaty, it puts limits on the deployment of warheads, missiles, and bombers, you know, ICBMs, long-range bombers, and and, and submarines, and things like that. Uh, But according to the State Department, this is what the State Department has told me. The inspections under New Start were paused in March 2020 due to COVID-19 and have not been resumed since. The talks in Cairo are expected to be focused on the resumption of these inspections. The New Start expires in 2026, and there's currently no agreement for a replacement or any further arms control treaties between the U.S. and Russia. Um, so... Uh, it's not clear, really. It seems like these talks again are mostly going to be focused on resuming the the uh, inspections, but hopefully they lead to something more. You know, more arms control treaties. Um, I have my doubts about it. I'm not too optimistic in this area because right now, you know, you see the Pentagon with the nuclear posture review and everything, making clear that they're putting an emphasis on nuclear weapons. Uh, both as a deterrence and, you know, potential use for first strike use, you know, that's on the table for the U S and this is all helping justify this massive, uh, if they modernize the entire nuclear triad, which they're planning to do, and they're already modernizing some aspects of it, it'll cost up to 1.5 trillion. So it's a big price tag. There's a lot of incentive for them to hype up the threat of Russia and China to, um, you know, spend that money and nuclear arms control treaties will get in the way of that. Um, and then on another diplomacy front, uh, Ryabkov, he said that Russia is hoping to reach a prisoner swap deal with the U.S. that would secure the release of Victor Bout. He is a Russian arms dealer serving a 25-year sentence in the U.S. And Brittany Griner, she's a WNBA uh, player. She's serving a drug charge in Russia. She could potentially be exchanged for Bout. Um, And, you know, there's been this increase in dialogue between the U.S. and Russia. There's still no sign that there's going to be any serious peace talks to end the fighting in Ukraine. Uh, We haven't seen too much of that over the weekend. Uh, And the Kremlin said on Friday, you know, they were asked about a potential Biden-Putin summit. And they said right now, you know, there's no plans of that. And it doesn't seem like that's something that will happen in the near future. But again, this is an example. I mean, it's good that these talks are resuming and there's other talks, you know, the head of the CIA met with the Russian spy chief. Um, there's definitely been a big change in this uh, aspect of everything. 
All right, the next one here, Russian strikes disable almost half of Ukraine's energy infrastructure. So this is according to the Ukrainian Prime Minister, Denis Shmyhal. He said that a Russian that Russian missile strikes last week, they were really hitting the infrastructure again. And that's when the missile fell in Poland, which turned out to be Ukrainian air defense missile. Um, when that that was going on, you know, they were really targeting the energy infrastructure. And he's saying that they dis- disabled nearly half of, of it, leaving millions of Ukrainians without power. So Russia previously avoided these large-scale strikes on energy infrastructure in Ukraine, but they began these operations in early October after the truck bombing of the Kerch Bridge, which connects the Russian mainland to the Crimean Peninsula. So they've, um, you know, kept these up. Uh, some days are are more intense than others, but there's been a lot. Um, Russian strikes in Ukraine, they appeared to wane on Saturday and Sunday. There was a lull over the weekend. But massive damage has been done. Uh, Authorities in Kiev warned on Friday that they are preparing for all scenarios, including the complete shutdown of the city's power system. And Politico reported last week amid this latest Russian missile barrage that Ukraine has warned its Western backers that it may not be able to recover if Russia launches more strikes on its energy infrastructure. The report said that Kiev is worried they might not have enough replacement parts to bring power and heat back online, and they're looking to the West for assistance. So this could be, you know, another type of aid that that they want from the U.S. and its allies. Um, but really, it's saying that they don't think they could prepare, repair the grid fast enough as these Russian strikes keep going. So it's a pretty horrible situation for um, people in Ukraine, just for ordinary, you know, civilians. Um, that aren't even fighting the war, um, you know, with winter coming, especially, I mean, they're not going to be able to heat their homes. Ukrainian officials said on Saturday that they were starting a voluntary evacuation from the Southern city of Kherson, which Ukraine recently uh, recaptured after Russia withdrew from the city. Russia just left there. And they're saying that it's due to uh, damage to the city's energy infrastructure Um but it could also be, you know, that they're gonna—they're expecting Russia to launch an offensive eventually against that city, uh, you know, in the coming months as they're still reinforcing, um, you know, their their lines. And I know the fighting has been going on. I don't follow the battlefield stuff too closely, but I know fighting has been going on pretty intensely in the eastern uh, Donbass region. Um, so that's still going on. But right now in the south, uh, there's not any big offensives by the Russians yet. In an effort to ease concerns, Ukraine's energy ministry said on Saturday that it has control of the power grid despite the Russian strikes, and it said that there was no need for people to panic. I think they're trying to avoid, I don't know, like a big exodus or something. Um, But, you know, if this continues, that's what we're going to see even more migrants pouring into Europe as they're going to be dealing with their own energy crisis this winter. So it's just a bad situation. Um, The next one. Russia says that Ukraine has renewed the shelling of the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. So Russia said this on Sunday that Ukrainian forces renewed the shelling of this plant, uh, which is in Russian-controlled southern Ukraine. Now, if you read the Western media reports on this, the headlines are, you know, Ukraine blames Russia for shelling power plant or that they trade blame. But, um, you know, this power plant has been under Russian control since March And I just don't see any reason why they would be uh, 
shelling it right now. I, I mean, it's just no, it doesn't make any sense. And Ukraine's credibility has definitely taken a hit after there's them denying that it was their missile that landed in Poland. Um, but still, that's still a headline that they have to go with in, you know, AP and, and all places like that. Um, so this is an advisor to a Russian nuclear agency. They said that they shelled on Saturday and Sunday, and it continued. Um, there was explosions at the plant. The Russian military also uh, said in a statement that there was shelling, but they did say radiation levels remain normal. And the statement accused Ukraine of, of trying to create the threat of a man-made catastrophe at the ZNPP. That's the Zaborogia nuclear power plant. So the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, they confirmed that there were strikes at the plant on Sunday, calling them extremely disturbing, but they did not attribute blame. Rafael Grossi, the head of the IAEA, he said, you know, whoever is doing this, you have to stop. Um, you know, IAEA inspectors did visit the plant, but they did not attribute blame for the shelling. So if you look, if you're watching on the video and you look at the map here, um, the plant is on the Dnieper River and across the river uh, that's Ukrainian controlled. And it's come under a lot of shelling, not so much recently. These, these were, this is the first uh, strikes reported in, in, a, in a little while, in a few weeks at least. But for a minute there, it was really, there's a lot of action, you know, a lot of attacks on this plant. And again, Russia has controlled it since March. So, you know, they went in and there was fighting when the, when they first invaded they controlled it uh, since then. Um, so, you know, and that's just such a major detail. And when you see the, this reported in, in the Western media, like, the, you know, sometimes they don't tell you until a few paragraphs in that Russia controls the plant. So how could they be bombing it? Um, all right. So the next one, this is pretty big. Turkey launched airstrikes against Kurds in Syria and Iraq over the Istanbul bombing. So Turkey carried out dozens of airstrikes in northern Syria and Iraq. This was on Sunday, overnight Saturday into Sunday, um, against Kurdish groups that it blamed for a recent deadly bombing in Istanbul. So Ankara blamed the Kurdish militant group PKK for the Istanbul bombing, which killed six people and wounded at least 81. For their part, the PKK and its affiliates, they've denied any role in this attack. Dozens of people were reported killed in Turkey's strikes in Syria. This is in Syria. I haven't seen a casualty number for Iraq yet because it sounds like they, they did launch a lot there, but I haven't seen anything. Um, but And there are conflicting reports about the casualties in Syria, so we don't really know. Uh, the U.S.-backed Kurdish-led SDF, they were targeted. Um, those are the Kurdish forces that the U.S. backs. And there's all different names of groups, you know, the YPG, the SDF, the PYD. But really, you know, the SDF um, is kind of the one that, over overseas, you know, I think all the groups there. Uh, but they said that wow, one of their fighters was killed along with 13 civilians. But then there was other reports that said it was 14 militants were killed in uh, SDF-controlled areas. This is the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, which is based in Britain. Um, and they're also reporting, and other sources I saw said that some Syrian soldiers were killed in Turkish strikes in other areas of Syria. Um, 12, some reports said 12 Syrian government soldiers were killed. And there's uh, some conflicting numbers there, but it does seem like some of them were were killed. Um, 
So it's pretty major airstrikes. The Turkish Defense Ministry said on Sunday that its warplanes hit 89 targets across Syria and Iraq, claiming that they were all military infrastructure connected to the PKK. Before dawn on Sunday, the ministry, this is the Turkish Defense Ministry, they wrote on Twitter, along with a picture of a warplane, quote, the scoundrels are being held accountable for the treacherous attacks, end quote. So they're talking about the Istanbul bombing. And this is one of Turkey's biggest operations in the region in, in a few years, it seems like. I mean, they often do, inv- you know, go across the border, but this is pretty serious strikes. Um, and, you know, this raises fears that this could turn into a major conflict between Kurdish groups and Turkey. And the SDF warned that it will retaliate and its response will come effectively and efficiently, is how they, they said it. They didn't give any more details in that. So with Turkey, you know, this has always been a big issue between the U.S. and Turkey is the fact that the U.S. backs the SDF in Syria. And Turkey's interior minister accused the U.S. of being complicit in the Istanbul bombing. Um, I think that was last week. I went over that last week. And this wasn't just an offhand comment to the press. In a statement to Turkey's parliament on Friday, he said it again. He's accusing the U.S. of, of being involved, being complicit, or enabling it by supporting these groups. Um, so this, you know, could turn into something pretty big. And uh, who knows what that will mean, uh, you know, for the U.S. So the, F- the SDF has has said, the Kurd- this Kurdish group, they've said this a lot, that they're open to working with the Syrian government against Turkey. But the U.S. presence in Syria makes that cooperation a lot more difficult. And on the other hand, Turkey recently said that it's willing to ally with Syria, with the Syrian government, with Damascus against the Kurdish groups. But Turkey has uh, has been backing, you know, militias and all sorts of groups against the Syrian government for years now. So th- the idea of them cooperating is a little hard to believe right now. But you know, things things change. Um, but the Kurds, you know, anytime the U.S. said, like when Trump said he was going to leave, he was going to pull out. The Kurds said, "Okay, we'll go." You know, um, we'll go talk to Assad. That that was always their answer. And and, and you know, it just it goes against the narrative, you know, that leaving would really, you know, lead, leave the Kurds out to dry. Um, all right. So the next one, more bombings in Syria. These ones are Israeli. Israeli airstrikes in West Syria kill four Syrian soldiers. And this is by Jason Ditz. So they, they, it appears that they targeted military posts in uh, western Syria, and at least four Syrian soldiers were killed and one more wounded. Um, reports are claiming that unnamed pro-Iranians were the target. That's always kind of the justification by Israel. that They claim that they're attacking Iran in Syria, but as these strikes did, they often kill Syrian troops or uh, civilians sometimes and... Um, other times, you know, Iraqi Shia militias that are there, which they probably just label as Iranian. Iran does have a military presence in Syria. It's pretty small at this point. It's advise, advisory. And, uh, you know, they were there in a much larger force during the, the big war against ISIS. And, you know, the U.S. was on their side then. Um, but the Syrian uh, state media said that their air defenses were activated and, and that they intercepted intercepted some missiles. Uh, so, you know, again, this is pretty common 
and it barely gets any attention uh, that Israel is constantly launching airstrikes in Syria. All right, the next one here, China says that it is open to a defense minister's meeting with the U.S. So this is more, um, this is more talks between the U.S. and China that, that appear to be upcoming. This is from the South China Morning Post. They're saying, reporting that China has said it is open to a defense minister's meeting with the U.S. at, the, at a regional security forum. Uh, in another apparent signal that Beijing wants to revive lines of communications after a spike in tensions. Chinese Defense Minister Wei Fanghei and his U.S. counterpart Lloyd Austin will both be in Cambodia for the five-day ASEAN Defense Minister's Meeting Plus. So ASEAN, that's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. I think that's yeah what the abbreviation stands for. Um, so that's all the Southeast Asian countries. That's their little uh, coalition and their meeting along with, you know, their partners and stuff. So um, it looks like there's going to be more talks between the U.S. and China following that Biden Xi meeting. So that's good. But this next one here is just another, you know, message to China from the U.S. Kamala Harris is going to visit a Philippine island on the front lines of the South China Sea dispute. So Kamala Harris is going to visit this island of uh, Palawan in the Philippines. It's a Philippine province, and its west coast is on the South China Sea. It's just outside the what they call the nine-dash line, which is China, China's claims to the South China Sea. Now, China and Malaysia, Vietnam, Brunei, and the Philippines they all have overlapping claims to the South China Sea. And it's not just China that claims a pretty big portion. It's also, you see Vietnam, they claim a lot of a lot of territory here and they cut into, you know, the Philippines claims. So it's not just China isn't the only big claimant uh, with overlapping claims. Um, you know, so they all kind of have their own disputes. But the U.S. has inserted itself in this dispute, and they've formally rejected China's claims to the waters. And um, something that happens in this, I mean, is that China and the Philippines, they occasionally have these maritime standoffs near disputed reefs. Sometimes it's with fishing boats and Coast Guard vessels. And the U.S. often reminds Beijing that it's a treaty ally of Manila. The U.S. has explicitly warned Beijing that an attack on Philippine vessels in the region would invoke the 1951 mutual defense treaty between Washington and Manila, meaning that the U.S. is threatening to go to war with China over this maritime dispute. So, you know, this is just an area uh, where, you know, the U.S. has basically pledged to go to war with China, you know, over literal rocks <laughs> in the South China Sea. So Harris, she arrived in Manila on Sunday, and she is set to visit Palawan on Tuesday. Oh, and just one detail that I skipped over here is, you know, this is very clearly a message to China. She's going to be the highest level U.S. official to ever visit this province. And she's not just visiting it. She's going to visit one of the Philippines Coast Guard's biggest patrol ships. She's going to and, and deliver a speech there. And I'm sure it's going to be all about how we have to hold uphold the rules-based order and all that, uh, you know, 
nonsense that that they always say. But I mean, you know, this is definitely a big strength, kind of a just a big message to send to China, and a strange one if if you're if you're actually serious about reviving dialogue and easing tensions, which I don't think that they are. Um, so she's there already. She's going to meet with the president, Fer Ferdinand Marcos Jr. And so he came in and he was expected to take a harder line on China than Duterte, who's his predecessor. And it seems like he is at first, you know, he said a lot of nice things about China. But then you see that this is happening. And part of this trip, according to a Biden administration official, will be focused on reinforcing the U.S. Philippine alliance. White House released a fact sheet on the things she's going to focus on, and one of them includes the Enhanced Defense Cooperation Agreement, the EDCA, and that is a military pact between the U.S. and the Philippines that was signed in 2014. And this deal was meant to enhance the Mutual Defense Treaty and the 1999 Visiting Forces Agreement, which outlines rules for U.S. troops stationed in the country. Under the EDCA, the U.S. can rotate troops into the Philippines for prolonged deployments and build military facilities for the U.S. and the Philippine uh, forces to use. So the U.S. is looking to uh, expand facilities under this agreement. And the White House said that they've been looking at new building locations. They've identified them. So, you know, this is about U.S. military expansion in the Philippines in this region. And they recently did some war games where they practiced, you know, storming an island in the South China Sea. Um, and if you look on the map here, you know, there's disputed rocks and reefs. The Spratly Islands is one. And there's more south down here that are pretty close to uh, Palawan. All right. So the next one here, the U.S. to deploy over 100 unmanned vessels to the Persian Gulf. So CENTCOM announces that's U.S. Central Command on Saturday that a U.S.-led task force will deploy over 100 unmanned vessels to the Persian Gulf by 2023 as part of a regional effort against Iran. So these are drone boats, you know, remote-controlled boats that they're going to send a bunch of them over near Iran. I mean, that's a pretty major provocation if you are in Tehran. Um, and this is based... Uh, this is a task force that is based out of Bahrain that the U.S. started back in 2021. And uh, General Carrilla, he's the head of CENTCOM, he said that the greatest threat in the region was the development of adversary drones, referring to Iranian drones. Um, and he said that CENTCOM was also building in, in what he called an experimentation program in the Middle East to beat these drones with uh, the U.S.'s partners. So the U.S. is looking to foster cooperation between Israel and its Arab allies against Iran, which has become more, you know, possible since Israel normalized with the UAE and Bahrain in 2020. Israel is hoping to build a regional alliance with these Gulf Arab states, but it will take time as some are still hesitant to collaborate openly with Israel like Saudi Arabia. You know, they're doing stuff behind the scenes but they don't want to really do much out in the open. So this is something that they're working on. And it's part of, uh, it's a big part of what I think the U S wants to set up in the middle East. So it can, you know, put its resources more focused on China and Russia, but at the same time, they'll be able to, they'll have this, uh, you know, U S led Israeli Arab NATO basically is what they want against Iran, um, to do all their, uh, dirty work for them. All right, the next one here, more 
Tensions on the Korean Peninsula, the U.S. flies more bombers with South Korea after North's ICBM test. So U.S. B-1B Lancer hypersonic, hypersonic bomb, bombers and F-16s joined South Korean F-35s on a flight on Saturday following an ICBM test by North Korea. So these B-1B bombers, they were not deployed to the Korean Peninsula for five years until earlier this month when they participated in the final day of the massive vigilant storm exercises. So those were, you know, these massive uh, aerial drills that they conducted. They were originally slated for five days, but 24 hours a day. And they were basically simulating bombing North Korea. Um, and when those, those drills provoked North Korean missile and artillery tests, pretty massive ones, what did they do? They extended them and then that provoked more. You know, it's like this is just kind of the cycle out there and just tit for tat escalation. So North Korea has carried out a record number of weapon tests this year as the U.S. and South Korea have restarted war games together. There was a long time where this stuff wasn't happening. And it's because of uh, the diplomacy under the Trump administration. You know, they didn't really get anything on paper, but uh, it did definitely ease tensions. Trump going over there and the dialogue that was going on between the North and the South, but that's not happening now. And something that was interesting during the ICBM test on Friday, Kim Jong-un, he inspected the launch with his daughter, and that was the first time he revealed her to the media. Um, despite the spike in tensions and the tit-for-tat escalations, the Biden administration has shown no interest in changing its approach to North Korea. The administration is still calling for the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which is a non-starter for talks with Pyongyang. If they were serious, what they have to do is um, offer an incentive, you know, sanctions relief for a pause in their nuclear program, something like that. Uh, but as always, uh, that's it for the news for today. Um, we have a lot of good viewpoints. We have one from Ted Snyder about the Cuba embargo, how it's isolating America. It's is amazing that that embargo is still in place. And uh, our spotlight is from Connor Freeman over at the Libertarian Institute, the forever war at the end of the world um, about, you know, all this stuff that we're always talking about with China and Russia. Uh, but that's it for me for today. I will be back tomorrow with some more news. You can uh, support the show antiwar.com slash donate, like, and subscribe on YouTube, Odyssey rumble, for the video and you can download the audio wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, but that is it for me. I'll catch you tomorrow. Thank you.